Welcome to the Daily Horror Habit Podcast. I'm your host, Jay Krieger, bringing you daily reviews of currently streaming horror movies for your twisted pleasure. Be aware that these reviews may include mild spoilers. And as always, I hope you enjoy. Cheating death only delays the inevitable, a fact that carries over into part two of my Final Destination series review. The original was a strong alternative to the conventional slasher formula, which left me eagerly anticipating whether or not Final Destination 2 could continue death's elaborately creative killstreak. Currently streaming on Netflix until June 1st, director David R. Ellis's Final Destination 2 centers around a new cast of characters who nearly avoid dying in a highway pileup after new series protagonist Kimberly has a premonition of their death. But just like in the original film, death doesn't take kindly to those who alter his plans. Now, the survivors must take on a reluctant ally who has an intimate knowledge of death in an attempt to live. The film opens with the new protagonist, Kimberly, listening to a TV interview which serves as exposition to catch up viewers on the events of the previous film. I actually really liked this uh, in that it summarizes the events of the previous film in a matter of minutes, and it's obviously not that difficult to understand, it's a pretty simplistic concept, but it catches people up and it's introduced organically enough that there isn't this sort of over-reliance on flashbacks. Fast forward to the following day, and Kimberly and her friends are gearing up for a spring break road trip, which, as you guessed, isn't going to go as planned. Now, the history of slasher sequels hasn't always been a positive one. They can typically feel like a retreading of the original, doing little to differentiate themselves or expanding the series in a new and exciting direction. This places an emphasis on them to outdo the kills and thrills of the original, and in this regard, Final Destination 2 succeeds, sort of. Given Final Destination 1's explosive opening, the sequel had to outdo it in similar fashion, and continues to weaponize its world. And it does in weaponizing an entire highway. Kimberly's premonition shows a shocking symphony of motorcade carnage as a log truck's cargo falls off and bounces across the highway lanes, flattening motorists and causing all manner of deadly hijinks. Much like the plane crash in the original, the highway pileup is a fantastic display of effects and explosions that while more reliant on CGI, it's far more competent than I assumed it would be. Even the logs themselves I didn't realize until later were CG, due to real logs not bouncing quite to the director's liking. What's central to this scene really is, much like the original, is the foreshadowing death clues that pop up in the minutes leading up to Kimberly's uh, premonition of the crash. Kimberly, much like Alex, before boarding Flight 180, starts to notice these small clues, which kind of reinforces that something is amiss. Uh, an example being, when she's driving on the highway with her friends, she passes by a school bus full of kids chanting pile up, uh, and it just so happens that the bus is full of kids from Mount Abram High School, which is the same school that had all the victims from the first film uh, attending. And then there's this constant referencing to the number 180, which was the flight number of the plane that crashed in the original. And so the highway pile up takes place on Highway 180 or Route 180, and then she also sees a sign that says uh, road work for the next 180 feet. So that recurring theme of that number keeps popping up as one of the many clues that's kind of littered throughout the buildup to this massive uh, highway pileup undertaking. In finding these small indicators of how a crash or the kills will occur really captures the fun of the original and picking apart small hints and clues that could be central to the hinted chaos that's about to unfold. But for as strong as this opening highway scene is, the film is never quite able to top its complexity or grandiose scale, and this is almost certainly due to the increased number of kills. So to stop her premonition from coming true, Kimberly blocks the freeway entrance to stop additional traffic from merging into the chaos. Her and the group of survivors are now in death's crosshairs, having survived the eventual pileup that occurs down the way. The increased cast size means more deaths, which ideally would be great, but 
This is going to require a bigger budget and resources, which the film is never really able to capitalize on as well as it probably should. The result is some deaths are just too simplistic. They lack the creativity and the elaborate kind of construction that a lot of the kills in the original film had. And that film had less of the core cast die, whereas in this one, a bigger cast results in more deaths. So we get deaths that not only we get multiple characters in one death, and we also get more of the kind of sudden deaths that we didn't have too many examples of in the original because there were fewer. So the fewer there were, the more time they could spend on developing them. Whereas in this, more characters and more deaths means, like I said, more budget is going to be dedicated to the, each of these new kills and making them different. So they just lack a lot of the uh, creativity of the original. Now, don't get me wrong. There are certainly highlights, such as uh, the lottery winner, Evan Lewis, character, uh, has an elaborate explosive set piece where he's heating up food in his kitchen, and then he drops a ring into the garbage disposal and gets his wrist stuck in there. And then the stove catches on fire and the microwave starts to explode because a piece of metal got in there. Um, and then he ends up falling off of the fire escape. And just as he thinks he's escaped the inferno that's taken place in his apartment, the ladder falls down and skewer and uh, sep- uh, impales him in the eyes, which is gruesome, bloody, of as you can imagine. Uh, and then there's also one of the survivors, Tim Carpenter, uh, shout out to John Carpenter. Uh, that's one of those little nods, kind of like how in the original, there's a character named Billy Hitchcock, obviously is a uh, homage to Alfred Hitchcock. Uh, lots of little moments like that scattered throughout this film, which was cool to see them kind of continue that love letter essentially to horror films in the horror genre. But uh, Tim Carpenter is getting a dental procedure. And during the time when he's like in the chair and he's got the gas on, we start to see a fish tank leaks and then a cable short circuits. And there's lots of these little fake outs where we assume that we can kind of guess how he's going to die. There's even one point where he gets hit with the nitrous gas when the doctor's doing a procedure and the doctor leaves the room and like a toy falls from the ceiling and it falls into his mouth. And since he can't move, you assume that he's about to choke to death on this. But again, that's a, one of these little fake out moments that they have that really keeps the audience guessing and adds a level of tension to a scene like this that you really don't have normally for some slashers. Like usually slashers are pretty, the approach is pretty obvious. Like you can guess or start to guess and make hypotheses based on what you see about where the kill is coming from, where the killer is going to be stationed or hiding. But this is a really great example of there's this tension because this continual fake out of things, potential ways he could die. And then the final one being he walks outside and a pane of glass falls on him and we get this horrifically gruesome kill and graphic kill, which again speaks to the strong effects, both practical and CGI in these movies where this pane of glass falls on him and he his body essentially folds backwards and we see that his body is obliterated and crushed, which is a really great kill and it's something that I didn't see coming. And it speaks to just the strength and the creativity of how these Final Destination films are really built as a response to the kind of monotony of a lot of slashers, especially from the era. But these two kills were the main exceptions, whereas they had improved VX score and they were brutal. It's just that all the other kills that occur after these lack a lot of the substance and the creativity that made the the previous two kills I just mentioned memorable. The other ones are more kind of just sudden and shocking and come out of nowhere, which when you're contrasting the two are not nearly as satisfying. 
Now, aside from the kills, the sequels narr- has a lot more narrative shortcomings, which I'm not a fan of, given that not to like say that I'm putting the original story and characters on a pedestal, because that certainly was problematic in certain areas. But Final Destination 2's story doesn't really add anything to this arching narrative, and none of the lingering questions that I had in the original are really answered. Uh, we're still not given an explanation for the premonitions, other than the characters having avoided their first death was due to Flight 180 crashing, which is a cool kind of uh, realization and reveal is that the people in this film are being targeted because they skipped over their deaths when the 180 flight crash happened in the original one. They got distracted, such as the cop, Thomas Burke, was supposed to die in a shootout that day, except he got called to the scene of Billy Hitchcock's death via the train. So he avoided death's design in that instance. There's another character, Kat Jennings, who was supposed to die in a hotel gas leak, but the bus she was on was delayed, hit Valerie when she was crossing the street in the original. So these types of connections are kind of cool in that it connects the original to the sequel and it doesn't kind of just completely ignore the past film. But this never really amounts to anything, which is annoying. And again, com- uh, compiling that with the fact that we never learn why Kimberly is having these visions, but nobody else in the group is. Again, like, What's special about her? It just seems like a missed opportunity to develop her character more. And it we never given like a reason of why she's kind of the leader of the group other than she has the premonitions. I feel as if something was special about her and why she's having the premonitions, it would have given her more of a reason to like be the leader of this group. Whereas none of the characters are really definable or you just don't really build up much of an interest in them. Now, the narrative stuff is not all negative uh, as we get another fantastic cameo from Tony Todd. Uh, who returns as this, the highly suspicious mortician Bloodsworth, uh, who has all of this information and knowledge about death, apparently, but there's never an explanation given for how he knows that, which kind of leads to my speculation that he's like the Grim Reaper in some extent, except apparently I've read in interviews that him and James Wong have vehemently denied that, that he's not a supernatural person. So if he's not, I'm kind of just cons- don't understand like the justification for it. But he also introduces this new concept that new life can negate death's plans, which kind of kickstarts the film's second act's narrative in that one of the women that survived the highway pileup is pregnant. And so the group now has to protect her so that she can have her child and deliver her child unharmed. I mean, regardless of them not really fleshing out Bloodsworth's character that much, uh, I'm always in favor of more Tony Todd, and I'll take as many cameos from him in these movies as I can get, because he's always a, uh, a treat to have show up. But I think the most egregious element of Final Destination 2's narrative is the amount of shade that they throw at Devin Sawa's character, Alex, from the first film. Uh, now, Sawa claims that he was not in the film because he was fired due to a contract dispute, which... If you were going to have a contract dispute with any of the characters from the first film that would be returning, I would think that you would want to give in to him, given that he's the most compelling and he's the most emotionally driven character out of the group. And he really is the lifeblood of that original film. While it's not a perfect narrative by any stretch of the means, he's still the most easily relatable character in a lot of ways. Like seeing him grapple with the survivor's guilt. Meanwhile, he's dealing with people blaming him for all of his friend's murders. He's a very easy character to feel for and to want to become invested in to see him win. So the idea that you wouldn't go out of your way to bring him back, even if it costs extra money, is pretty ridiculous to me. But even more so egregious is the way that they wrote him out of the second film in that Kimberly finds an obituary 
for Alex that states that he was killed by like a falling brick. Like a fucking brick. Are you kidding me? You're going to kill off the best character from the last film by saying that he was randomly killed by a brick. It's just super dismissive and it's unoriginal, which kind of adds insult to injury in that they couldn't think of something more clever given all of the dedication to these creative kills and clever kills from the original. It just, it feels like his character wasn't done the justice that it deserves. Like if they were going to kill him off, they could at least come up with something memorable instead of he's hit by a stray brick that falls off of a building while he's out walking. It's it's just disappointing. And I know his character obviously doesn't show up in the rest of the series. So to put such a such an unjust like pin in his character is really unfortunate. And the dismissive attitude that they have towards uh, Alex's character is also echoed in their handling of uh, Clear's return. Her team up with Kimberly and the other survivors is fine, I guess. Doesn't really bring much, though, to the narrative other than she's constantly restating, like, we need to death-proof whatever room they're in. Her development really feels underwhelming, and her death is equally dismissive of her Final Destination veteran status. Like, piling her death on with somebody else's to do, like, a two-for-one death really doesn't do it justice, especially when she's this veteran character. She's returning, and she's not even really treated like she's the star. For whatever reason, Kimberly's character has more stature within the group than Clear. Whereas you would assume Clear should be the star because she's returning. So that was just very disappointing to see as well. As tradition, I think it's time to rank the kills of Final Destination 2. So first and foremost is obviously the highway pileup. It's the most elaborate. It's the most chaotic and destructive. But again, there is this sort of elegance to the way the chaos is presented. It never becomes unclear what's happening. You can still see... The pieces that are clicked, the dominoes essentially that are falling, that once they strike another domino, it's this massive explosion or it's cars crashing into one another and seeing people get taken out and whatnot. So it really is this orchestrated chaos that never allows the viewer, no matter how chaotic, to become lost or confused as to each of the pieces that is happening. Next up is uh, Tim Carpenter being crushed by the glass. Uh, That entire sequence just has a lot of great fake outs in it that I think really speaks to the originality from the original film carrying over into this in a way that wasn't super common, unfortunately, but this is a clear example of a solid kill. And the again, the special effects that go into making these kills more brutal really goes a long way for this kill. Next is uh, Nora Carpenter, Tim Carpenter's mother. She gets uh, decapitated. And this is one of the more tongue-in-cheek kills in a way because it's got this weird me- moment where Moments before she gets decapitated by the elevator, she's in the elevator and there's this like old man behind her. He's got a basket full of prosthetic hands that have hooks on them, which kind of a weird thing to have a ton of on the elevator. But like he's a super weirdo who like starts sniffing her hair for no reason. And then when she gets off the elevator, her hair gets caught in one of the hooks. And so now she tries to back out of the elevator and the doors slam on her head. And then the elevator starts to go down. Uh, And meanwhile, as this chaos is unfolding, again, a gag from the original film that's a callback is John Denver music's playing. John Denver, the musician, very famously and tragically passed away in an airplane crash. So that's kind of like a recurring gag from the original film because John Denver played pretty much exclusively through all the deaths in uh, the original Final Destination. Next is the Evan Lewis in the apartment kill where he gets his eyes get impaled by uh, the ladder. Kind of like with Tim Carpenter's death, this one features a lot of great fake outs in the apartment and it just has more of a organization to it that 
a lot of the kills in the later half of the film don't have. A lot of the kills later in the film, which we're about to get into, are more comedy focused almost, which I think is losing what was so great about the original is that the original, much of it was like black comedy and that just at the last second when you think somebody's about to survive, they don't, which is different than if you have a death that is 100% just for laughs. At least with Evan Lewis's death, half of it was this organized chaos in the apartment and that all the fake outs and whatnot. And then it just when you think he's safe, he gets killed. Whereas the next kill, Kat Jennings kill, she gets impaled on a PVC pipe. It's like 100% laughs. Kat Jennings survived briefly a car crash where a PVC pipe impales the headrest on her seat by she moved her head so it missed her. Now, when the rescue workers show up with the jaws of life and they dig it into the side of the car door to try to free her, it sets off the airbag, which snaps her head back, and she gets actually impaled on that PVC pipe. This is one of those moments that is almost entirely for laughs. Like, it doesn't really have a ton of creativity, and there's no real elaborate setup to it. It's kind of one of those shocking, immediate kills that doesn't really do much for me. And then I would pair this one with this character, Brian Gibbons, who gets saved early in the film, or about halfway through the film, he gets saved from getting hit by a truck. And this is the last scene of the film, the last 90 seconds where they're at a barbecue and this kid goes over to the grill and turns the grill on and they all realize at the table like, oh, he survived. So death's plan is still going to get him. Death's design. And then when he turns the grill on, he explodes and, a, and his arm lands in front of his mother right on her plate at the barbecue. And it's like, that's clearly just for a cheap laugh that didn't really have, I could have done without it. It just didn't do much for me. And for the next kill, Rory Peters' death, he gets uh, trifurcated with a barbed wire fence. So he gets like his arm cut off. He gets his torso severed from a flying barbed wire fence. Kind of a cool effect, I guess. But again, it's so sudden and it's just kind of like a shock value thing that it didn't have a really big lasting impression on me. And by far my least two favorite deaths have to be Eugene's and Clear's, which again, Clear being a veteran, having her death so sudden and packaged with another character just to kill them off by something that's by all means, for the franchise, very tame. Like, they both get incinerated in an explosion. And it just feels kind of dismissive, not only to her character, but to Eugene's character also. Uh, so that's by far my least favorite. And that was super disappointing to see. I mean, overall, Final Destination really is an example of quantity over quality in terms of kills because of the bigger cast. They obviously have to kill people in more ways. And I think moving forwards, I'd be afraid that it's going to become a recurring trend of them kind of doing two-for-one deals on kills, like packaging characters into deaths. So that way, they don't have to design as many death scenarios until the end of the film. But uh, I'm hoping that's not going to be a big issue in Final Destination 3, but I could definitely see that happening. Uh, I also know that Kimberly nor Officer Burke's character return in Part 3, which honestly isn't a big deal for me because neither of them had the charisma to carry leading a sequel. And I would hope that the next person that they cast as the lead is able to really carry it more. And maybe we even get a continuation of characters from one film to the other. Because Clear's continuation into the sequel was a nice indication of possibly continuing the narrative in a new way, but it just really wasn't fleshed out to the extent that I would have liked. Or it wasn't respected by the writers as much as I would have liked. But my biggest one for a sequel is some sort of developing the reason behind the premonitions and why people continue to have them, why are certain people having them but other people aren't, I think is definitely what I want them to expand on in the narrative. But uh, I'll have to see for Final Destination 3. But uh, that's going to do it for another episode of Daily Horror Habit. I'll see you guys next time for another Daily Horror Movie Review. 
Thanks for listening to another episode of the Daily Horror Habit podcast. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe to Daily Horror Habit on your preferred streaming service and follow at Daily Horror Habit on Instagram or at Daily Horror Pod on Twitter.